invite you to turn in your Bible uh, tonight to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, and tonight looking at verses 4 through 16 uh, under the title of The Accidental Missionary. Jonah chapter 1. Remember, Jonah is a prophet of the Lord ministering to the uh, northern nation, Israel. Uh, in, their last, uh, in their last days, uh, Israel is not going to be around much longer, coming under the judgment of God. And we see in our message uh, tonight, in our text tonight, uh, why that's going to happen. What is God's um, critique of Israel? Why, why are they an offense to Him? And uh, we'll see that in our text tonight. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Jonah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord." Just notice, uh, God says, go to Nineveh, and three times you get a Tarshish, a Tarshish, Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's committed to uh, avoiding, ignoring, completely uh, denying God's call and command. But the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Well, where do you come from? What is your country? And what, of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father, now we come and ask that you would teach us. We ask that the Spirit would lead us and guide us in your truth. 
uh, that we would be molded by it, formed according to your purpose and will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah chapter 1, uh, the story that we have in front of us tonight, I think is, is one of the most fascinating uh, stories in the Bible. Uh, it is somewhat like a play which captures in miniature the great drama of human history. Uh, you, you have here all the primary participants of the human drama. You have a lost and ruined race uh, headed to uh, judgment and death. Uh, you have a uh, Jonah representing the church of God, the people of God. And then you have God himself, the one true uh, saving and judging Lord of heaven and earth. And one of the unique uh, things about Jonah, Jonah 1, is that the story is told with the sailors, the pagans, the lost world in a sense, as the primary focus. We're watching this drama unfold through their eyes. We're told about their behavior, given insight into their emotion. We're listening to their questions as they come face to face with the living God of Israel and uh, his disobedient prophet, and in that come face to face with their own sin, their own need for salvation. This really is a, a, a wonderful conversion story, but therein lies the irony and the tragedy of this story. Because in Jonah 1, we see God rescuing these pagan sailors in spite of the prophet, not because of him. The sailors get grace, Jonah gets judgment. And here we learn a, a, a truth about Israel. We, we see Israel's sin and we see Israel's offense against God and we see why Israel is going to be soon cast out of the boat, cast out of the land of promise. Israel is going to be hurled out of the land precisely for the same reason Jonah is hurled out of the boat. They failed to take up and carry out God's mission to a lost world. This dramatic play is uh, easily structured in three separate acts um, surrounding the theme of the sailor's fear that you read about in verse 5 and 10 and 16. And so we're just going to take it that way, act 1, act 2, act 3, and we're going to be just studying the players on the stage, and we're going to be asking, what is God doing in this scene? Uh, what, is, what is Jonah doing? What are the sailors doing? We just want to just look at the big picture. So imagine being at a theater and the stage is before you and now the play is going to begin. Act one. What is God doing? Well, the Lord is clearly on the stage, verse four, and is active. He, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. What is God doing? Well, God is doing two primary things. One, as we looked last week, he is responding to Jonah's disobedience. God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh, but Jonah, Tarshish, Tar not Nineveh. He's going as far away as he can possibly get. But God interrupts jo uh, Jonah's rebellious flight. God interrupts Jonah's plan and sends this great storm. He was responding to Jonah's disobedience directly. 
But that's not all he's doing. God is also revealing truths about himself. He's He's revealing his eternal power and divine, his eternal nature and sovereign power in the things that he's made, and he's doing this for the benefit of the sailors. So this is, uh, we know that God is doing this in, in everything that he has made. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, that the, Romans chapter 1 verse 18, Paul says the wrath of God, it's really a, a wonderful sort of short definition of what's happening in, in Jonah chapter 1. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, yes, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so this storm is not just God intersecting a wicked prophet. This is God revealing the truth uh, about himself to these wicked sailors. Uh, the, the, the text tells us that this storm is directly the, the, um, the work of God, as all storms are. We tend to think that there are sort of, there's the natural world, and every once in a while God will, uh, it will intersect the natural world with supernatural events. Well, that's somewhat true, and yet we know that all that is called natural is the work of God. Uh, Psalm 148, verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth, you, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy winds fulfilling his word. All stormy winds fulfill the word of God, and this one is no exception. So that's what God is doing. He's revealing himself as the great true God. His, his eternal power, his, his, his eternal nature and divine power are being magnificently put on display. Well, what are the sailors doing? Uh, The sailors are, they're just being the world. These men are a wonderful depiction of the world at large. Sailors would, uh, would, would sort of make their way to the harbors and the boats, and they would come from all parts of the world. You'd pick up this guy from this country and this guy from, from that uh, faraway country over there. And so you have men from, from far-flung countries and cultures, religions. Notice each man is crying out to his own God because they don't share the same God. They're from, they're from all over the world. So here is uh, the world... But they're all Gentiles, all pagans of the purest sort. They're all wicked men. Sailors were notoriously wicked. And they're about to come face to face with the living God. And so the first thing that we read about the sailors is they were afraid. Verse 5, they're in the middle of the storm. Uh, They were afraid and each cried out to his own God. Notice they were not afraid when they left the harbor, were they? Uh, these were skilled, experienced sailors, and when, when they left the harbor, they were very confident, uh, very, very content. Their boat was their world, and they were very sure that their skill was sufficient to keep their world safe. It's exactly like the world of wicked men today, the world of human men and women. 
very confident that we have the necessary equipment ability to provide for ourselves, to protect ourselves, to manage our world for our benefit. And political parties vie, but uh, both of them basically saying the same thing. We know how to do this. We are capable. We can fix what's wrong with the world. That's what they promise you on the campaign trail. But when judgment comes... When God shows up in his wrath, all that confidence is revealed as absolute nonsense, utter folly. These skilled and capable men suddenly find themselves utterly helpless in the storm of God's judgment. And their ship, their world, literally begins to fall apart. The Bible says that's exactly what's going to happen to this world. When Jesus Christ returns, men are going to realize that, that they are helpless to save themselves. And we realize all the time, we just don't want to admit it, we don't know how to run this thing. Uh, why is the world the way it is? And the answer is because we are the way that we are. And we live in a world of judgment. And we can't fix the judgment. We can't resolve the problem. Not in our strength. And these men now in the face of death... Well, they're terrified, and they're willing to do anything to live, and so they begin throwing everything overboard. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. This, this cargo, of course, is it's their life. It's their business. It's their, it's their, 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 their retirement account, right? It's, it's everything that they own. But Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What will a man give for his own soul? The value of a life is priceless, and so they're willing to throw it all away in order to preserve their life, but it's not enough. Of course, it never is. You can't save yourself with your money. You can't, you can't right? Shall I offer the firstborn of my body for the sin of my soul? Is that sufficient? No, it's not. You can't make it right. And they recognize, you see, their helplessness, they recognize their inability, and so they begin to cry out to their own God. They are most likely not highly religious men, but in the crisis of their soul, and as, as they face death, they, um, they cry out to their gods. There's a, there's, a, there's a profound sadness to this. If you, if, you, if you just think about the world that we live in, it, depicted by these men so perfectly, people made in the image of God, about to, to die, perish forever under the judgment of God. And they have no idea whatsoever where to find help. They cried out to the gods that their parents told them about. Gods that do not exist. Gods that cannot save. Why do they cry out to those gods? And the answer is because they don't know the true God. They've not been told of the true God. How will, how will they know unless... Someone preaches to them. How will they hear, believe in him whom they've never heard? That's what Paul asked in Romans 10. They've been brought up in spiritual darkness. This is all they know. No one's ever told them how to escape the wrath and judgment of God by fleeing to the grace of God revealed in his son. It's just so desperately sad. And so they face eternal death with no hope. And, it, and it's that that makes you see Jonah's actions so incredibly appalling. What is Jonah doing? 
Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. And so in this great crisis of God revealing his divine nature and expressing his judgment against sin and, and, and wicked men crying out for help and willing to do anything, desperate to be saved, in that great crisis, the man of God is fast asleep in the ship. It's a, it's a devastating critique, rebuke of Jonah and Israel. Jonah's priorities are not God's priorities, rescuing, saving men. Jonah's priorities are not the priorities of these men, trying to help them in any way. He's not concerned about these men. They're, they're Gentile dogs. Jonah is a, a, an Israelite man. He has been ignoring Gentiles like this all of his life. He does not have a concern for them. He sees them maybe every day, but no concern. No sense of any responsibility to them. His priority is to get some rest. And it's, it's going quite well. He's, he's fast asleep. Just like Israel, the people of God. Living in a world that was perishing all around them, a world of men and a world of men and women who are under the judgment of God, but, but Israel has no concern for them, though they have a call from God to be a light to the Gentiles. That that God placed them in the middle of that wicked pagan world so that they could shine the light of the glory of God and call men to believe and trust in him and be saved. But that was not Israel's priority. Israel's priority was for themselves. And so they're fast asleep in a dying world. And I think it's so true so often for the church today. Do you have any idea how many unbelieving lost people you, you see a day? Does it ever strike you they're lost? Does it, does it ever just hit you that this person is just like you, made in the image of God, but has no hope? And very possibly has never, ever heard the gospel? Or are we just fast asleep? Doing our thing, living our life, taking care of what matters to us. There's a rebuke here for us. And it comes from the pagan. He goes down and he sees Jonah sleeping. And he says, what do you mean, you sleeper? And, and, and the point is, man, what is wrong with you? There, there's got to be some fundamental flaw in your being that allows you to sleep while we are perishing. Something's fundamentally wrong, not right. I remember uh, just a, a video clip from, uh, it's, a Penn and Teller, the, 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 the magician duo, and I think it was, it was Penn, I believe, but was talking about, just on his little uh, uh, podcast, saying, I have no respect for Christians who don't proselytize. And he's an atheist. And he, and he says, if you actually believe that there is such a thing as eternal life and, that, and, that, and eternal hell, and you don't tell people about that, how, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them? That's a pretty good question. Jonah's rebuked by the pagan. 
What's wrong with you? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps he will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They're desperate to be saved. And that's the close of of Act 1. Act 2 begins with the sailors, uh, verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. What are the sailors doing? The sailors are trying to make sense of this great calamity. It's one of the most common human responses to suffering. Why? Why is this happening? How do we make sense of this? What's going on? The sailors are clearly trying to figure that out, and they've made some progress. They've, they've, uh, they've figured out that this storm is, the, is an act of an, a very, very angry God and a very mighty God. They've never seen a storm like this in their life. And the cause must be human sin. And so if they can determine who is responsible, who has committed the evil, they may be able then to pacify the offended God. They sense that this storm is a, is a direct personal confrontation between an offended deity and a sinner. And so they cast lots. That would be the way of, div, of di, discerning uh, what the gods know. The gods will show us who it is. So they cast lots, they rolled the dice, and the lot fell on Jonah. Again, what a devastating statement. What an indictment on Jonah and God's sinful people. There's maybe 20 pagan men on that ship and one Israelite. 20 men who know nothing about God and one who does. But when it comes to the source of evil, when it comes to the cause of offense, the thing that infuriates the God, the lot falls on Jonah. It wasn't the pagans who raised the wrath of God. It was the prophet. And so they begin their questions. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? They're trying to put the pieces together, trying to ascertain the nature of the sin. Whatever it is, it must be an awful, awful sin. It must be exceedingly grievous because the God is clearly, profoundly offended. He's about to destroy all of them. And so the question is, Jonah, what wicked, wicked, vile, awful thing have you done to so offend your God? You know what the answer is? He refused to participate in the mission. I think something that seems to most of us to be a very small sin. And yet that's exactly the sin of Jonah. What does Jonah do? Well, Jonah tells his story, but he does so in a way that's very telling itself. He doesn't tell them his occupation. Notice that was the first question. What's your occupation? That doesn't show up. What he does say is he tells them, uh, verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, In the original language, the Hebrew, uh, the word Hebrew is the first word. It emphasizes it. It uh, shows the importance of this. So Jonah says, Hebrew I am. This is his identity. It's, It's wrapped up in his ethnic distinctive. I am a child of Abraham. That's how he sees himself. That's what's important to him. That's his pride. That's his confidence. It's exactly what we see in the Israelites of Jesus' day. 
When, when John was, uh, was rebuking them, you brood of vipers. Who, was, who told you about the wrath? Who told you to, to escape the wrath that is to come? And, and he says, don't even, don't even begin to tell me that you're children of Abraham. Don't even start. God can raise up children from Abraham from these stones. Because that's what, that's what they would always say. God has no quarrel with us. God cannot have a quarrel with us. We're Abraham's children. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did, namely believe. But because you do not believe, you show that your children actually of the devil. But that's how Jonah starts. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a child of Abraham. And when he does mention his religion, it, it's, it's sort of in a boast. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You see, this is the great sin of Israel. They boasted in their faith instead of sharing it. Their faith was their pride. They believed in the right God, the true God, not like the Gentile dogs out there. They believe in the God who made the heavens and the earth. Jonah says, I, I believe in the God who made the sea, very relevant at that moment, and the dry land, which is everyone was hoping to get to. And of course, it's true. Jonah, Jonah does believe in that God. And, and, and God is the, the, the God of heaven, and he did make the sea, and he did make the dry land. But the profession is a lie. Not concerning God, but concerning Jonah. He says, I fear the Lord. No, he doesn't. <laughs> That's patently clear in the story. If there's anything true about Jonah, he does not fear the Lord. The Lord said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, get lost. You see, God's complaint against Israel is exactly this. These people profess me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. There's all sorts of people who will boast of their profession, their reformed distinctives. They have the right theology. They believe in the five points of Calvinism. They could maybe recite them to you. They have a clear understanding of the scriptures. Uh, they believe their confession of faith. They believe the right things about God. But the faith becomes a source of pride. A source of pride that causes us to look down on lost people instead of humbly speaking the gospel to them. And it's offensive to lost people. If you would ask the common person, what do you think of Dutch Reformed Christians in West Michigan, or just Christians in general? There are going to be many, many lost people who have a very small view, very dim view. Particularly, I think of, of Reformed Christians. They're proud. They're self-righteous. They're self-centered. This is the great sin of Jonah. It's the great sin of Israel. It's possibly the great sin of harvest. What is God doing? Well, God is revealing Jonah's sin and Israel's sin before the whole world, before the watching world. The lot falls to Jonah because God directed the lot to fall there. This is the divine finger of God pointing directly at Jonah and saying, you're the man. You're the man, the wicked man, the offending man. 
As much as this book is, is a revelation of the missionary heart of God, you see, it's, a, it's also a revelation of the missionary failure of Jonah and of Israel and God's just anger because of it. And so the scene closes with the heightened terror of the men, verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is it, this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. And so the, the, these men, understanding that now he, he's a Hebrew, and he has just told his God to get lost. They're, they're stunned. What in, the, what in the world have you, have you done? What, are you, what were you thinking? This, this is the God who brought Israel out of Egypt, the mightiest nation in the world, and they didn't lift a finger. He did it all with these devastating plagues, even bringing them through the Red Sea and drowning Pharaoh's entire army. You don't mess with this God. Jonah, do you have any sense of what you've done? Do you, do you have any sense of, of the danger you've put yourself in? You see, th- these, these men are gripped with fear of the wrath of God in, in light of the reality of sin. This is no little thing. Death is imminent, and the death is directly because a holy God has been highly offended because of personal sin. It's only when men and women, you see, come face to face with these things, the, 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 the truth of the holy, holy, holy God who is, and then the truth of the reality of their sin as an offense against that holy God, only then when they start to think to themselves, what have I done? What have I done with my life? What have I done with all that God has given to me? What have I done as an image bearer of God? Then they start to ask the question in earnest, what must I do to be saved? And that's the question now they ask Jonah in Act 3. What must we do to be saved? They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. The holy and mighty God of the Hebrews stands against them because of Jonah's sin. And the question is, how do we solve this problem, Jonah? What act must be performed? What shall we do to you? How do we make right your wrong? What does your God require to remove guilt? What does your God require to turn away wrath? How could we be reconciled to your holy God? It's a perfect question. But the answer stuns them. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. Jonah knows the answer to the question. He knows this storm is an expression of God's wrath for his sin. He tells him, this, this storm is here because of me. And he knows from his Bible that, the divine, that divine wrath can only be satisfied and only turned away through um, the satisfying of justice. The wages of sin have to be paid. They have to be paid. They will be paid. And the wages of sin is death. And so Jonah says to them, kill me. He he has no idea of a fish. Throw me overboard. 
Throw me into the sea of judgment. In, in, in Old Testament language, uh, the Israelites, when they would think of the judgment of God and, and death, they would think of the sea and Sheol, which is down in the depths of the sea. That, that's, Jonah says, throw me there. The only way these men can be saved, their only hope, is if there is a sacrifice that propitiates, that turns away the wrath of God. There's no other hope. Jonah knows this is true. He's seen sacrifices a thousand, thousand times. God's clear, revealed right, um, will that, that it is only a, a, a bloody death and atoning sacrifice that can, that can turn away the wrath of God. And so Jonah says, you need to kill me. Throw me overboard and you'll have peace. And we can tell the sailors were shocked because they don't do it. Uh, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. The wrath just continues to build. You see, they start to row because it doesn't seem possible that there's no other way. That there's no other way to solve this problem. And they recommit themselves to doing, to doing everything they can to rescue themselves. It is precisely the picture of our world. Right here we are in this boat, men from every nation, all different religions, all hoping to find some way to solve the human problem of sin, some way to escape the just penalty of death, some way to be rescued, but, but by our efforts. And, and we will try mightily. People literally give their firstborn children to death in an attempt to save their soul. Or people will trust in science. That's going to be the answer. There has to be some way, some way other than what God has shown us in the Scripture, which is a crucified Savior, a propitiatory sacrifice. But there's no other way. It's impossible. They could not. They could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. There is simply no way. The, the, the human condition is that we live in a world under judgment because of Adam's sin and because of our sin, and there is no fix except this fix. And therefore they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The language of the text, there's some debate about this, but I think it's abundantly clear that the language of the text shows these men coming to faith. There's several things you could point out. They called out to the Lord. That is, that is biblical language. That's what believers do. The Lord here is the, that's the covenant name, Yahweh, the, the name that uh, God's covenant name, the name that believers claim. Uh, they called out to the Lord. That's what, that's, what, that's what Christians do. That's what faith does. And they've cast, they've cast all their hope on the Lord. They've abandoned, finally, hope in anything else. And they're concerned not to sin. They've, they've seen what God does with sin. And so they say, lay not on us innocent blood. Well, Jonah's not innocent. Right? He's guilty, but, but he's guilty in, in relation to God, not in relation to them. And so, and so they're concerned to take his life. But you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. That phrase only shows up three times in the Old Testament. 
That God does as He pleases. And in every time, it is, it is an expression of the true nature of God as God in contrast to all pagan gods. For instance, Psalm 115, verses 3 and 4. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their gods are idols of silver and gold, the work of human hands. And so these men are coming to a cognition and a belief in God as the sovereign God of heaven and earth. And they find grace through the sacrifice. They picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sacrifice was effective. We're told the sea ceased from its raging. The wind, the wind was stilled. The sunshine broke through. The sea became glass. The Lord of the land and sea was reconciled to these men. So what was God doing? Well, God is illustrating the core truths of the gospel, isn't he? That the vilest sinners can be saved, but only in one way, and that's through the death of another. And the, and the, and the glory of the gospel is, is exactly here, that as it has pleased you. Do you know what it pleased the Lord to do? It pleased the Lord to cause his son to suffer. Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Lord to lay your sin on Jesus Christ and to crucify his son in your place. It pleased the Lord to cast his son overboard into the waters of divine judgment so that there could be a propitiatory sacrifice that could reconcile you, the sinner, to him, the holy God. It pleased the Lord. God is revealing the gospel. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 25, that God put forward his son as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And everyone who receives this sacrifice, who believes in Jesus Christ, that he died bearing their sin, will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What were the sailors doing? They were coming to saving faith and responding in reverential worship. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. They're not doing this before the storm ends in order to try to make themselves right with God. They're doing it after the storm ends in a response to God's grace and favor. They feared the Lord exceedingly. This is the fear of, of holy reverence and awe mingled with the deep joy and delight that this God is God, truly God, and this God is willing to be pacified through sacrifice. We can be reconciled with this God. What was Jonah doing? Jonah was sinking beneath the waves of divine judgment. Just like what would soon happen with Israel. They would soon disappear from the face of the earth under the just wrath of God for the very same reason that Jonah was, because they refused the mission of God. Note the great irony, the incredible irony of the story. Jonah, the prophet who refused to be used as God's instrument of grace to the pagan Ninevites, finds himself being used as God's instrument of grace for these pagan sailors but it was just on accident. It was in spite of him, not because of him. And that's the great concern of the story. That's, that's why this is in the Bible. It, it's, it's, a, it's a story written for Israel. It's a story written for God's people. 
It's a reminder that they've been given a call from God to a mission. And that they live in the midst of a lost and dying world of men. Men that God desires and determines to save. But Israel has no concern for their soul. Jonah had no concern for these dying men. And God was angry. He was angry. Boyce makes the point that God will save his elect and that uh, he'll do it either with us or around us, without us. But he will do it. But if he does it without us, then we get no joy and no reward for any of it. I think that's true. But I think we can go a step further. Any church that will not shine its light will at some point lose its light. God has given us a mission in this world. And if we will not engage in it, we are inviting the anger of God and the loss of covenant privileges. Why would God continue to show grace to us and to our children if we show no concern for his lost and wandering children? He has many elect in this city. They're just lost. They're no more wicked than you and I. In, in, in terms of our natural selves. They're just lost. They don't know. No one has invited them to church. No one has asked them to come and do a Bible study. No one's, no one's taken the time to, to, to tell them about Jesus. And God's called us to do that. As, as I was studying this, I, I just would, I, frankly, I would just get up from time to time and walk around my office and just say, oh God, what are we doing what are we doing? The obituaries tell the story every day of men and women going to hell without Christ. And we shop with them and we, and we go to the park with them. You know what happened this last week? I, had, uh, I purchased something on Craigslist. And it was a great deal. It was really a great deal. I was very proud of myself. <clears throat> and then the guy sold it out from under me. And sent me back my check. And I was, I was angry. I was very angry. I was vastly more upset about that than anybody going to hell without Christ. Fast asleep. I don't know what God has in store for Harvest Church. But I, I think I know what he desires for Harvest Church. We have so much. Three out of four of our neighbors do not know Christ. Is this not God's call for us to get serious about evangelism, about engagement with our community, about talking to people about Jesus, inviting them to church, that we wake up and have a concern, God's concern for a lost world? I'm convinced this is God's word to us. We're going to be talking about staffing, and we're talking about it now. We're praying about what do we need. I, I just have to tell you, I'd love for us to spend money on someone who can help us learn how to reach out to a lost world and push us and encourage us, lead us in that. All I know is I don't know how we can continue to receive the gospel week after week and delight in the gospel week after week and have no concern for people who need to know it. 
God has provided a great salvation through the sacrifice of one man, Jesus. He died sinking beneath the wave of divine judgment so that you and I could be set free. The sacrifice was sufficient. The sea is calmed. God's justice is satisfied. And now we get to go and share the story. And so let's pray that God gives us the grace to do it. Amen. Lord God, you have been so kind and so gracious to us. So many of us, Lord, have been born and raised in Christian homes where we had the gospel given to us from our infancy. And others, Lord, were wonderfully invited to church or brought to some knowledge of God and by your work of grace have come to faith and life in Jesus. And you've brought us together and you've put us in this time, in this community, this place, to carry out your mission. And Lord, you clearly reveal in the book of Jonah that you have a concern for this lost and wicked world. And you tell us in your scripture that you have many, many elect who have yet to be gathered in. And Father, I confess that I've been asleep church so easily and often is asleep. And we pray, Lord, that you'd have mercy on us, that you would forgive us, that, Lord, you would teach us how to love and care for people made in your image who are without Christ. And that we, Lord, loving Jesus and loving them and full of joy and confidence in the Lord would, would not be able to help but speak and pray and reach out and risk because the gospel is, is such glorious news and there's only one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. There's only one sacrifice that is able to atone for sin. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, do that work. Maybe just start right here in our own heart. If we need to be actually converted, Lord, show that to us and bring us to faith. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the joy of carrying out the mission by your strength, your power, but we would see people in a different way. We wouldn't see addicts. We wouldn't see people who swear. We wouldn't see people who are lazy, people who curse and don't care about the things we care about. We would see people who have been made in the image of God and who are utterly lost and are desperate for life. And we'll give you the praise as you do the work and bring your children, lost children, home to the glory of Jesus. And we will have the joy in participating in your mission as you've called us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Let's respond just praising God for our Redeemer. I will sing of my Redeemer, he who took the nails for me.
now as you go out.